requires no identification, no description. Everyone knows what it is. It attracts more attention than any other aspect of the human predicament. It is the leading theme of most Western literature, inviting treatment both as comedy and as tragedy. Sometimes deplored, sometimes idealized, it is always near the front of the stage in the enactment of human tensions and dilemmas. That is from a chapter titled, Man, the Cracked Vessel, in the memoirs of one of America's most widely respected diplomats in the Foreign Service when I was a boy. The writer is talking, of course, about our human sexual desire. It attracts more attention than any other aspect of the human predicament. That quote actually reminds me of a great scene in the most theologically profound movie ever made, What About Bob? Some of you... Some of you will know the scene. It's where Bob Wiley has persuaded the whole staff of the psychiatric hospital that he is, in fact, not a textbook narcissist. I won't tell you how it goes. I don't want to spoil it. I actually was talking to a couple of you recently and learned that there are actually people who have been part of this fellowship for some time who have never seen that movie. So, all I can say is you need to be ashamed of yourself. (laughs) Last week, we saw the Apostle Paul addressing the problem of Christians suing each other in 1 Corinthians 6 in the opening 11 verses. But don't forget that in the chapter just previous to chapter 6, in chapter 5, Paul showed himself profoundly distressed by the fact that a guy in the church has taken up romantically with his stepmother. And the church's response seems to be, well, that's pretty edgy, but hey, whatever. Paul says in verse 2 of chapter 5 that they had become, quote, arrogant with regard to this man which sounds like they're boasting about what he's doing instead of mourning it. So Paul, in chapter 5, is dealing with sexual problems in the church. And after addressing Christians suing each other in the first half of chapter 6, he's going to address another sexual problem. And then he's going to go on in chapter 7 to address yet another sexual problem or two in the church. So there is a lot about the birds and the bees, shall we say, in 1 Corinthians. Now let's just summarize what we looked at last week. The scandal is this, that Christians are defrauding one another, suing each other, either over money or property, and they're going before unbelieving judges. Paul says, look, can't you find somebody smart enough in the congregation to settle the dispute? Don't go before unbelieving judges. Not so much, we may infer, because these judges didn't care about justice, but more because Paul sees it as a compromise of the unity of the church, the honor of Christ's name, and the power of the Holy Spirit to demonstrate to the world that the church is different. 
that it is, in fact, the new humanity, the vanguard, the leading edge of the kingdom of God as a community of love, of peace, of justice, and of goodness. Now, we kept verses 9 through 11 in 1 Corinthians 6 for today because I said this is kind of a hinge paragraph. It finishes up Paul's counsel about the lawsuits, but it also prepares us for and applies to what follows in the last half of chapter 6. And that is more on the problem of sexual sin in the church of Jesus Christ and how it is to be addressed So before we read this section of Paul's letter, let's stop and ask the Holy Spirit who has been given to us to give us ears to hear, shall we? O Lord in heaven, we bow low. We bow low because we understand that it is you who has shined your light into our hearts to see who Jesus is. Everything hangs on what on the truth of what we have been celebrating and singing about. That in fact, when he hung bleeding, it was not only the guilt and power of our own disobedience, but it was the demonic powers of evil that he was defeating. And Lord, none of this matters if Jesus is not alive even now. But the remarkable claim is that he is. And Lord, those of us who have bowed low have met him soul to soul, if not face to face. We pray that you would give us ears to hear, O Lord, that you would humble us and to see all that flows out of what it means that we live by grace. And so hear us, we pray now, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Follow along with me. You have the insert in your bulletin, verse 7 of 1 Corinthians 6. To have lawsuits at all with one another, Paul writes, is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. Now, right there in verse 8, Paul calls some of them out on what they are actually doing. They are committing toward each other acts that cheats and frauds are guilty of. And so it's exactly at that point, at the end of verse 8, that Paul feels constrained to lay out in no uncertain terms for these professing Christians, that the kingdom of God has a sharp edge to it. And if you push yourself up against that edge, the edge does not give. You will. And it will hurt you. So Paul says in verse 9, and this comes, it is what it feels and looks like, it's a warning. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, those first two out of three terms here, refer to sexual immorality 
In general, notice the heterosexual sin comes first. Nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. It's interesting that in the original language here, that first but is actually repeated three times. But you were washed. But you were sanctified. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I want to stop there so that we can see clearly and reflect a little bit on what Paul is doing. He is warning these Christians that they can't live this way. That is, to have a little cubbyhole in their life. That's where Jesus goes. And then there's the rest of their life where they're doing what they please and just living like everybody else is in terms of how they treat God and secondly, how they treat other people. Paul's point in all this is to warn the saints, not only the person here who has wronged his brother in the church, but the whole community, that if they persist in the same evils as the unrighteous characteristically do, they are in the same danger of not inheriting the kingdom. The warning is real. The unrighteous person will not inherit the kingdom. That first of all applies to the unsaved. Now who are the unrighteous in the scriptures? They're not only people who willfully and sometimes proudly and self-confidently do things that are contrary to the law of God, The unrighteous can be full of spiritual pride and have a spotless record, at least on the outside. The righteous, on the other hand, in the scriptures, are not those who have their life together, are not those who have all parts of their lives together. They are, in fact, those who know they are a wreck and need Christ in their lives and have run to him, despairing of their own goodness and turning to Christ by persisting in the same behavior as those who are already destined for judgment. These professing Christians are placing themselves in the very real danger of that same judgment. If that were not the case, then the warning is no warning at all. Now that was spoken by one of the most astute students of 1 Corinthians. Well, the warning here is for us, friends, and we are to take it seriously. Now, careful here. Because it's easy for us to be tyrannized by a warning like this and twisting it 
The fear can rise within our hearts. Okay, so if I just mess up once, God's going to boot me out the door? Is that what we're talking about here? Am I supposed to live with a kind of constant paranoia? Anxiety-ridden? To make sure I get everything right in the way that I live? Unable to rest in the grace of God? that we've been celebrating this morning that covers our faults? Are we led into the kingdom by faith alone, but then told here in 1 Corinthians 6, the only way you can stay in is by your obedience? And the answer, of course, is no, not at all. The commentator I just quoted goes on to say, that Paul's own response to this sober warning that he has just given the Corinthians is, in fact, verse 11. And such were some of you. But you were washed. But you were sanctified. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. But you were washed, almost certainly an allusion to baptism and what baptism signifies, that the stain of our guilt. Do you remember Lady Macbeth? She can't rub out the stain of her own guilt. But you were sanctified. That is, you were made holy. You were set apart for God as a person without fault in his eyes. By means of what? Justification. But you were justified. In other words, God counts you righteous because the righteousness of Jesus Christ has become yours through faith, even as your unrighteousness and my unrighteousness was imputed to Christ. He carried it as he hung in my place and in yours, bleeding and dying under the wrath of God. Now, friends, do you, do you see in this verse here, in verse 11, really in the whole of the warning, though, too, do you see Paul's fatherly heart, his motherly care for the congregation in Corinth that has an awful lot of immaturity in it? He cannot bring himself to leave the warning stand on the sharp Note it sounded. So he says, in effect, in verse 11, I know that such is not who you are. No. I know this. You have met Christ, and he changed you. I saw it with my own eyes when he was with them for 18 months. Your life became different. Not all at once. And you didn't become perfect. Your sexual desire didn't shrivel up and die, but you changed by turning away from those things that you knew displeased your Lord and your God. That's who you are. That's who you have been, Paul is saying. So come back to it and hold on to it lest you forfeit it. Now look at the list in verses 9 and 10. Three out of the first four sins mentioned are sexual in nature. Do not be deceived. 
neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. It is true, friends, that faith in the work of another, in Jesus Christ, that alone saves a person. But what happens in contemplating the cross and turning in repentance and trust toward Christ? What happens? I find myself encountering the love of God, the love that he has for me. And that love then moves me to love God back. Listen to this. When heterosexual marriage is rediscovered for the unique creation it is, then it is morally impossible not to criticize other sexual arrangements which pretend to equal it and always in the process debase it. For instance, same-sex unions, as they are called, often with the best intentions, make a travesty of heterosexual marriage when they too claim to be a union of one with another. And then comes a question, an other? As if the otherness of the two partners had nothing to do with their being bodily other each to each. As if giving oneself to the other, say with love, eliminated the importance of each being sexually opposite. The fact is, that is precisely how opposites come into their own as heterosexuals, namely, as each one's other. As if the alternative to being one with an other, when that is too forbidding or unattractive or inaccessible, is to be one with a same. That is a man with a man, a woman with a woman. In fact, the more consistent, even more natural alternative is just being one, celibately single, and in that way, whole. It's a remarkable statement made more than 30 years ago by a Lutheran theologian here in St. Louis. There's a little nun Sister Wendy Beckett, she wrote a little set of meditations on love. And she wrote this about Narcissus. If you know your Greek mythology, you'll know that Narcissus was a young man. And he sees himself, he sees his image in a pool. And he is drawn to it, he is attracted by it. And he dies there from starvation because he fell in love with himself. And Sister Wendy Beckett wrote this, Love can be misdirected. If we choose, we can fix our hearts unavailingly. Narcissus fell in love with himself. He pined to death, longing for a response that of its nature 
could not come. It was his own reflection he was courting. But friends, here is a crucial thing to remember. Even when the object of affection is wrong, when romantic love is misdirected, it is still a human being looking for, longing for love and belonging and that deep connectedness with another human being. And that means that men who live with desire for men and women with desire for women are far more like those who are attracted to their sexual opposite than they are different. And that is where the Church of Jesus Christ has failed so miserably in the past. It acted as if homosexual sin was the worst possible sin. And people who lived with homosexual desire were pariahs and untouchables, virtually not people like themselves for whom Christ came into the world. And such were some of you. But you were washed. But you were sanctified. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now, we must not read into that past tense, such were some of you, the idea that God works a change in sexual orientation in every person who comes to Christ out of a homosexual life. Often that happens. But it is not the testimony of every such believer. The change that does come is in one's behavior, in one's identity. Who am I really? And in the redirection of one's whole life. I have an old friend who struggled with homosexuality in his life. He was a professing Christian and could not buy into the revisionist view that the church has misunderstood all of this for 2,000 years. And he was in a church that was wavering on this, and he wrote to the elders of the church, and this is what he said. It was because of this biblical orthodox position. In other words, that the truths of God's word hold supremacy over our cultural and experiential battles. It was for that reason that many of us repented of our homosexuality. I believe that if you called any of us in who did so, you would find no regrets or doubts despite the pain and difficulty. We would never look back to exchange the Lord's yoke for the old one. Repentance does not deny or negate struggle, not with respect to any other sin either. But why would any church who through God's word pulled so many out of Egypt and over the years sent them on into Canaan, now consider going back to Egypt. The gods of Egypt still tempt, but most of us who stand in the green pastures of Canaan because the Lord through his church delivered us there would laugh at the suggestion of returning to the place of misery. 
of slavery. It was a very moving statement. But such were some of you. But you were washed. But you were sanctified. But you were justified. In the name of the Lord Jesus. And in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now friends, all of this, you know this. I don't have to tell you what a challenge this is for us, where we are in our culture, in the first quarter of the 21st century. We are the minority now. We are the oddballs. We are those who are regarded as hate mongers and narrow, oppressive even. I was just reading the other day an article, and this writer very perceptively said, in our time now, two things stand out as being taken for granted. The first one is that sex is about pleasure and about pleasure only, and that, in fact, it's available in a variety of ways and with a variety of partners. That just goes without saying. And he said, secondly, is the idea that this pleasure in itself is simply morally neutral. The attempt to stamp out any particular form of this pleasure or any particular means to obtaining it is therefore regarded as a gross violation of individual liberty and is in fact an act of oppression. But friends, these verses teach so very clearly here that Warnings are to be heeded. Obedience to God is proof of the gratitude that marks saving faith. This is one of the hard edges of the kingdom of God. Well, in verses 12 through 20, Paul turns to another sexual problem in Corinth. And we're not going to go into it this morning, but this is a heterosexual problem, even as the first one in chapter 5 was. It involves men in the congregation going and visiting prostitutes. We'll come back to this, but I want you to ponder this precisely because there is so much about sexual sin in 1 Corinthians, roughly 400 years before Jesus was born. The great playwright of Greek comedies, Aristophanes, he invented a verb to Corinthianize. And it means to act immoral sexually. It passed into Greek parlance. That's how bad the reputation of old Corinth, Greek Corinth, had become. Now we need to be careful not to assume the same reputation for the new Corinth of Paul's day, that's Roman Corinth. It's more than four centuries later. Nevertheless, sexual looseness was common in so many cities in the ancient world, even as it is today. Let me close by encouraging parents to come Thursday night at 6.30. Joseph has arranged to have a speaker come and talk about how to teach our children encourage our children and protect them when it comes to sexual things. And as I encourage you to join us for that, I'm going to leave you with a wonderful statement about 
sexual love being indeed a rich gift from God because way too often Christians have not acknowledged this very clear teaching of Scripture. Sexual pleasure is indeed a rich gift from God when we honor the boundaries that he himself has laid down. This Christian woman wrote this back in the 1970s, Sexual life is all life, is given to us as a good and merciful gift of God. He gives it to us that we may have joy, joy in the vitality that surges in us, joy in the closeness of the relationship with our mate, joy in the marvelous mystery that makes the two of us one and binds us together in a unique and tender knowledge. That's what sexual intimacy is about. It is indeed a unique and tender knowledge of the other person. It is not without humor and silliness and joking at times, but it is always a unique and tender knowledge of each other. That is the glory of marital intimacy. And friends, it is moral sanity as it comes to us out of the imagination of God. 